just a reminder that we're having our men's camp out this coming uh, Friday night, camping out Friday night, and then uh, Saturday morning. I know some people are planning to come out uh, Saturday morning rather than uh, spend the night out, but uh, they can come out for breakfast, and then uh, we'll have a good time together, have some fellowship around the Word as well as with each other, so looking forward to that. Um, there should be a map or link to a map put up or sent out via email, put up on the internet, so that those who don't know how to get out there can can get out there. The probably uh, depends on whether you're coming from the Cypress area or whether you're coming straight out I-10. But you go if you're I-10, you go out towards Pattison. You just look for Pattison on a map. And it's just outside of Pattison. And if you blink quickly, you will miss Pattison. Okay? It is very, very small. But um, uh, we'll have that information out to you and hopefully send out a, uh, an address because there's a physical street address so that, um, so that people can find it. You can Google it and come pretty close to it. Also, remember to pray for Brett Nasworth and his family and their recovery, also grief over the loss of his brother. And then another reminder that it's time to update our emergency contact list. There's a list that is uh, allegedly out in the fellowship hall. I haven't seen it, so that's why I said allegedly. And for you to put your name, email, and cell phone information or emergency or contact information so that we can let you know for some reason we have a reason to cancel class. And also, Daylight Savings Time begins the first uh, Saturday night in November. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord in preparation for our study of the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come together as a congregation to fellowship around your word. We're thankful to be reminded of the eternal truths of your word, that we are to trust in you, not in ourselves. We're to put our trust in your word, doing what we are to do as your word says to do it, for a right thing must be done in a right way. Father, we come to be reminded of what you have provided for us. We come to be strengthened and encouraged by the biblical examples, and we come to be prodded by the Holy Spirit to apply these things in a consistent manner in our own lives. 
And Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we will be able to focus, get our attention off of the details of life and the problems and situations and circumstances and onto your word. And again, Father, we pray for this nation and this election season. We pray that we might um, continue to see godly men and women raised up to a position of leadership, men and women who will stand firm for the constitution of this nation, who will enable this country to have an environment that allows for churches to go unmolested by those who have uh, political and personal agendas expressing their hostility to the truth of your word. And we pray that we might have peace, that we can uh, conduct our lives, our spiritual lives, and fulfill your plan for us in terms of both witnessing and spiritual growth without interference or distraction from the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, and tonight we get to the battle, the big battle that everybody knows about, the big fight that didn't last probably more than uh, 10 minutes. You know, they say that one of the ten most decisive battles in the in the history of military warfare uh, took place just about 40 miles for here or less, maybe 30 miles, at San Jacinta. The battle lasted 18 minutes, and some of the largest amounts of real estate uh, in the world exchanged uh, hands at that time as the Republic of Texas was... Uh, given birth to. That was the Battle of San Jacinto. This battle probably less was even shorter than that. And the lesson that we are to learn from this comes right out of the text, and that is that whatever problem you're facing, whatever circumstance, whatever your worry, your fear, whether it's health or finances or people or jobs, that the Lord will deliver you. That is the promise of Scripture stated again and again and again because the battle is the Lord's. Now, as we have seen in the previous lessons, the Philistine army has come up, and they are uh, located on uh, one side of the Valley of Elah at a place called Azekah uh, or Ephes Damim uh, between those areas. And then across the valley, you have the location of the Is- Israeli uh, the Israelite army under Saul, and the Philistines have a mighty uh, warrior, a nine, he's over nine and a half feet tall, named Goliath, who comes out, beats his chest, boasts about all his victories. Basically, he's rude, crude, and socially unacceptable, and he is blasphemous and reproachful of the God of Israel. And every day they, and night, they have to listen to him Uh, mouth off that the gods of the Philistines are greater than the God uh, of Israel. And yet no one on Israel's side uh, has what it takes to come out and to do battle one-on-one with this giant. So the location is here in this valley uh, of Elah. There's an intermittent stream that runs east-west through here between Gath, the hometown of Goliath, and uh, Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, the hometown of David. Here is another uh, map, more of a topographical map. We have Saul's camp. Here's the Elah Valley. Here is uh, Ephes Damim, and they're they're meeting there. 
and uh, across this this valley, I would locate Ephes Damim further south than it is on this particular map. Um, and when the battle is over, they're going. The Philistines will be chased by the uh, Israelites back towards Gath and Ekron, two of the five major cities of the Philistines. Here's our overview with Ephes Damim located here, uh, the Israelite army across the valley here, and this is where everything took place in between. Today there's a highway uh, that runs north-south past the field, and this is where the tour buses stop and everybody gets out and they go to the, the, the dry stream bed there to find their five smooth stones. And everybody gets stones that are too small. I mean, we'll get into that as we go through the, through the study. I often wonder if the uh, Israeli Ministry of Tourism doesn't go there in the winter with a couple of dump trucks of rocks. Because with as many tourists as go there every year wanting to take out their five stones, uh, you would think that they would have quite a, uh, quite a canyon there by now. So I'm wondering if they seed that, but that's one of the things I think about in the middle of the night. All right, 1 Samuel 17, 8. 1 Samuel 17, 8, we see David preparing to engage Goliath, who is the enemy of Israel and represents historically the enemy of God as he stands uh, as the uh, face of Satan and Satan's plan over against God and God's God's plan. We saw the last time we ended up that that Saul clothed David with his uh, with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. And then uh, David fastened his sword to his armor, that is Saul's sword, and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. I don't think he could get very far, since David was about five six, and uh, Goliath, I mean uh, Saul was probably eight inches taller, eight to ten inches taller. It wouldn't have fit him, and so I think David rejected the armor for a couple of reasons. I mentioned them last time. I've added to them. Uh, first of all, I think that, as I pointed out last time, Saul wanted David to be mistaken for him. It's real subtle. If he puts the king's armor on David, then everybody will think that it's the king that's going out to fight Goliath instead of, of David. So I wouldn't put it past Saul to try to uh, uh, cop all the recognition and steal it from David. Second, uh, I, what we see here is David rejects what Saul is giving him. I think he does that for a couple of different reasons. One of them is that that what we saw with Israel back in chapter 8 is they wanted to have a king like all the other nations. And Saul has wanted to be a king like all the other kings. He wants to be recognized to be a uh, a great leader like all of the other kings. And so uh, he has adopted a certain uh, arrogant, rebellious, self-centered uh, tone to his administration. And David is rejecting his armor as he's rejecting everything that has tainted Saul's, uh, Saul's administration. David is going to do it the Lord's way and not man's way. And that is a fundamental issue that runs through this entire battle is that a right thing must be done in a right way. And we see that with Scripture all the time. And one of the problems we see in the Christian life 
One example is that we see a lot of Christians who think that the end justifies the means, and so if they go to uh, some sort of psychotherapeutic practice in order to um, in order to solve some problem in their life, uh, they don't. If they solve that problem, then they think oh, that must be the Holy Spirit, or they take medication. Now, sometimes people have to have medication. But uh, we're uh, extremely over-medicated in this country from many uh, psychotherapists uh, for many wrong reasons. And I've actually heard Christians say, once I got on XYZ drug, I could really walk by the Spirit. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that they really heard what they were saying. Uh, We all have a sin nature, and drugs may just... uh, change the manifestation of your sin nature, but we all have to learn to deal with our nasty little sin natures according to the scripture, not according to the prescription. Okay, that almost had alliteration there. You might think I was going to preach. So, uh, David is rejecting the human viewpoint approach to problem solving, and every Christian needs to do that, that we do not solve the problems in our lives, relational problems, personal problems, family problems, uh, work problems, by focusing on the techniques of human viewpoint. Does human viewpoint techniques work? Sure they do for a while, and sometimes they're easier right off the bat than doing what the Scripture says to do. That is always Satan's ploy. It's easier. It works better. Has God really said he's sufficient? Where, Where do you find the verse on that in the Scripture? Uh, that, so Christians always get sucked into into this kind of thing, looking for some uh, some other way to do it. But it also happens in the world. You can point to con- both conservative as well as liberal causes, and they might. I'll be generous here. They might have a cause. They might have a legitimate complaint about some sort of injustice in the world. But they adopt a a human viewpoint system, a non-biblical system to get results, to get attention, and to change policy in the government. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And when you adopt the wrong way to do things, then it's just a work of the flesh. And as Christians, we can never legitimize any movement, any person, anything that is a function of the work of the flesh. And one of the ways that you know if it's a work of the flesh is if it's divisive and if it's uh, causing great uh, chaos, especially among, uh, among Christians. So this is a problem. So we have to do a right thing, a right way, a biblical way. Otherwise, it will never have have the blessing of God. So David recognizes that, and he rejects uh, Saul's approach to kingship, uh, just as Jesus taught later that uh, the Gentiles lorded over uh, one another, but we as Christians are to serve one another. So David is identifying with the uh, shepherd leaders of Israel's history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and especially Moses and Joshua, and he's going to live by faith in the promises of God. 
A third thing we should note is David chose to trust in the Lord and his power and his provision and his promises rather than in the technology of man. We should note that the technology of the sword of Saul uh, was a technology that was uh, was uh, distinct. He and Jonathan, we learned later, were the o- or we learned earlier in First Samuel thirteen, were the only uh, military men in Israel that had uh, iron swords. Everybody else has bronze, and so uh, Saul is offering him the latest, greatest technology the latest, greatest whiz-bang tools in order to build uh, his kingdom and to conquer the enemy. And David is going to trust in, shall we say, the Stone Age technology of the God who formed the stones that were in the creek bed. He doesn't need to have the latest Uh, greatest uh, AR-15 or M-16 or M-4 or uh, whatever because he's got the Lord who's just a little bit more powerful than any human uh, technology. Uh, Fourth, we're going to see that David focuses on using the training and the skills that God gave him rather than trying to be someone he wasn't. Now, that's important for every person to learn. Every child, every adolescent, every young adult needs to learn that, that God has made each of us. The uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 139 that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. God designed each of us with our blend of talents and spiritual gifts to be distinct, to be unique. And yet we find so many believers who just want to be like somebody else. You see this a lot with pastors. It's amazing how many pastors are just taking what somebody else has dug out on their own by means of the Holy Spirit, and they just regurgitate it. And that's not using their spiritual gift. That's using somebody else's spiritual gift. They haven't learned to be the person that God made them to be. They want to be like somebody else that God made. Uh, David recognizes that he... Uh, he needs to use his own uh, abilities, his own skills based on his own background and his own training rather than trying to be someone that he is not. Now, we're reminded in 1 Samuel uh, thirteen nineteen that, um, no, we'll get there in just a minute. First uh, Samuel seventeen forty, David prepared. So he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones. So he has two weapons. He has his sling and he has his staff. His staff would be his shepherd's staff that he's taking with him. And with that, he can uh, do tremendous amount of of damage. But he also chose for himself these five smooth stones. Now, that picture that's up there is a picture of the first group that went to Israel with me. And they're looking around for uh, five smooth stones. And in the middle there in the red hat, you'd recognize Pat McDonald if you could see her face. And then behind her are the beavers and so you probably uh, I don't and Jeremy is in the hat in the foreground Jeremy Thomas who's a pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church so um, anyhow uh, he takes the five smooth stones that he found in the wadi here this is an intermittent stream in in, uh, American language but in uh, the Middle East it's a wadi 
and he has a bag that a shepherd would carry to put various odds and ends in, and so he put the, puts those in this this pouch that he has, and he has his sling in his hand, and then he draws near, he walks toward uh, the Philistine battle line. Now let's look at just some information about the sling. Here is a picture on the walls of, uh, that were found on the walls of Nineveh and Assyria of Assyrian slingers uh, who wore copper helmets and coats of mail, and these were depicted on uh, Sennacherib's palace. Now, in the ancient world, see, one of the things, we have such misconceptions about this, this battle. Now, a, a sling in the ancient world looked something like this in the, in the lower left. It was a uh, probably about a foot and a half to two feet long, two, two cords or strings or leather straps that had a pouch, a large pouch tied between them. And the pouch would have to be large enough to hold the, um, the stones. And there have been piles of stones that slingers use that have been found in, um, for example, in the uh, in Lachish, which is a uh, city in Israel not too far from here, where the Assyrians uh, uh, held siege. And after um, a while, they finally uh, won, defeated the city. And when Sennacher went back home, he memorialized that on on the wall. And so these these stones, you can't really tell the size there, but they're somewhere between the size of a of a billiard ball and and a baseball, and they weighed somewhere around a pound each. Now a slinger could sling. I've read some different accounts. Some people will say that they they would just wind it up two or three times before they would let it go and build a centrifugal force. Other would say that a good slinger would only need to to wind it up once and then let it go. It would could be clocked at up to over 60 miles an hour, leaving the sling, and that uh, its effective range was up to two to 300 yards, depending on the slinger. Now, that is pretty powerful. And when you get hit with a one-pound rock like that, right between the eyes, it's going to hurt. And we get this idea of what we, a lot of us grew up with as slingshots is some sort of little Y-shaped piece of wood that has some rubber bands or some sort of rubber strap tied to it. And then we take something maybe uh, the size of a marble or a little smaller, and, and we shoot that. I remember one time pruning a tree and getting a really nice, large, Y-shaped branch uh, when I was a kid. And then uh, going, and I found an inner tube, and I cut a couple of really long uh, straps of rubber off of it and had some large marbles and was having great fun until my mother discovered that I was probably going to kill some kids in the neighborhood if I, if I got out of the yard with that. Um, but I also tried a sling like this, and it, 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 you've got to be exceptionally coordinated in a lot of practice. They would usually take, uh, if you can see over here, there's a, a loop here that would loop around one finger, and then you would hold the other uh, end of the other strap between your thumb and your forefinger, and you would whirl it and then release one of them, and, and it would go off, uh, and they had tremendous accuracy, uh, as we'll see. 
Now, as we look at this this particular text, we're reminded that in uh, Israel at this time, uh, the Israelites were prohibited. You had gun control, an early form of gun control and arms control. And uh, by the way, if one particular party gets in control, they're going to be coming after the Second Amendment. They're going to do everything they can by executive order. And for that reason and that reason alone, they should be kept out of power because when the citizenry can't protect itself against the government, all of the other laws, all of the other amendments are basically useless. That is the most important uh, amendment that we have, is the right of self-defense. And so, and that was originally formulated to protect against, uh, against the government. So um, this was a problem. So nobody's got swords, and what we're going to see here is that David is going to use the basic tools that God gave him, showing that it's not necessary to have the latest, greatest technology if God is on your side. So David is, um, uh, takes these five smooth stones from the, uh, from the wadi, and he has his staff, and he starts to walk towards the Philistine, um, Philistine battle line. And he has his shepherd's staff with him, in Exodus 12:11, uh, this is the same word that's a generic word for any kind of walking staff or a shepherd's staff. Uh, Exodus 12:11, when God is giving them instructions about the first Passover, the first Seder, He said, "This is how you're going to eat the Passover. You'll have a belt on your waist. You'll gird up your loins, ready to leave, ready to walk. You'll have your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand." Same word. You'll have your staff in your hand, so you're standing there eating. One-handed, ready to go at a moment's notice as soon as Pharaoh says, get him out of here. Now, the next thing that happens is the Philistine comes. So we're going to go back and forth. We talk about David, talk about the Philistine, and talk about David. And uh, as we look at this, we see a certain dynamic. The story is intense. It's dramatic. It's one of the most dramatic stories in Scripture. And it's interesting how the writer frames it. So many people get this idea, well, they were pretty pretty old back then. They didn't know how to write. They knew very well how to write. They were excellent storytellers. And the language that is used slows you down. And it, it because the this this lumbering giant is not moving real quick. He he's not nimble. He he can't move quickly, uh, and um, and so you're slowed down as this lumbering giant comes. And and it just says in the in the Hebrew, it's that he's walking. So the Philistine walks up near to David, and he has this his shield bearer that is going before him. Now, we were told earlier in the around the seventh verse that he, the Goliath had a shield bearer, and this would have been the very large rectangular body shield that would have been quite heavy, that he would stand up in front of Goliath, and so it was as if Goliath had this, this uh, makeshift wall in front of him that he could uh, dodge behind whenever arrows or slings were sling, uh, uh, slings were being thrown at him. Um, so the man go with the, his shield bearer goes before him, and when the Philistine looks about, 
and he saw David. He disdained him. See, for the first time, he gets close enough to where he really has a look at this uh, lad, this young man. He's probably 18 or 19 years of old. Somebody pointed out that if you look at um, Michelangelo's David, that he has large, his, his hands and his feet are a little, uh, a little too large. He's growing into them. He's still not fully grown or fully developed. He's still pictured it, though, as a very strong young man. So uh, David is there, and he says it, he disdains him. And the word here is the Hebrew word baza, which means to despise, to treat him with contempt, not to have any respect. He looks at this kid, and he just looks down at him. Literally, he's looking down at him, but mentally he's looking at him. He said, what can this, this untried youth do against me? And he sees that he's only a youth. He's only a young man. He's ruddy. He's, uh, you know, we often think of this. He's ruddy. It's a picture of health, or he, he's got red hair. Uh, it might be something more like he still looks, he looks kind of pink like a baby. You know, he, he's not tanned. He, he hasn't been out, um, out, out fighting like the men. He still looks like he's a young kid. Um, but he's ruddy, he's good-looking, uh, but he is not yet a tested warrior. And so the Philistine then says to him, in the expression of his, of his contempt and his disdain, he says, uh, am I a dog that you should come out to me with sticks? Now remember, he's expressing his arrogance. And uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says that pride goes before destruction. And that's what we see pictured in Goliath. He's proud, he's disdainful, and what he is going to say has great theological resonance. It is a blasphemy against God. As he looks at David, he insults his most prominent weapon. Notice he doesn't say anything about the sling. David probably has it folded up in one hand. He has the, the, the stones in his pouch, so that's not visible. And all he sees is this staff, and he and Goliath says that you're just coming out to me like I'm a like I'm just an animal, and uh, you're just going to spank me with this stick. And so then he begins to curse David by his gods, and this is a really important word. Just as I pointed out earlier, that um, that when David hears the challenge from the from the giant. He immediately says, well, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? He immediately goes to the real heart of the issue that there's not a covenant with him for this land, but there's a covenant with us, and that's signified by the fact that he's uncircumcised uh, and we're circumcised. Of course, Michelangelo got that wrong. He missed the whole point of the whole story uh, because he didn't get that right in his in his statue. But this is another subtle point here. The Philistine curses David. And the word here is the Hebrew word kalal. Now, there's about five different words that can be used for cursing in Hebrew, but this is one that has great significance because it is used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. When God summarizes, this is a foreshadowing of what will be in the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abram, he says, I will bless those who bless you, 
And he doesn't say, I will bless those who bless you when you're doing right, when you're in obedience to the Lord, when you are obeying the law. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't, and the reality in history is that even when Israel was apostate, God still blessed, I mean, cursed those who cursed Israel. Um, And he would bless those who blessed Israel, even if Israel was apostate. so he says, I will curse him who curses you and, and in all and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now what would be a good example of this? The book of Esther. Book of Esther doesn't even mention the name of God. And what you have is a people who are presented as godless. Uh, in 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 Persia, in the fifth cycle of discipline, God is not relevant to their life apparently. Yet, yet God is protecting them, and he blesses those who blessed Israel and protected them from Haman, and he brought tremendous judgment upon uh, Haman, who was, was uh, wanting to destroy uh, the, all of the Jews in, in Persia. Now, what's interesting in this phrase, we translate both of these words in, in uh, English with the same English word, curse. But the two Hebrew words that are used are very different, and they imply different things. So God says, I will curse him who curses you. Now, that first word is the Hebrew word arar, which has to do with a very strong, harsh judgment. The second word is a softer word. It's the same word we have uh, back here with Goliath. The Philistine curses David. It means to treat someone lightly, to treat them with contempt. So the Philistine is treating David with the same kind of contempt that God talks about in the Abrahamic covenant. I will deal harshly and judge harshly the one who treats you with contempt. God is going to demonstrate that this is still in effect with, with Goliath. Goliath is going to kalal David, and God has said, anyone who kalals Israel, I will harshly judge Arar. So this is a fulfillment of that. And here we've studied Israel. We've studied Saul. It's a great example. Is Saul walking with the Lord? No. Is the nation mostly apostate at this time? Yes. So God is still true to his promise. Now, that's important because you will hear people today, you will hear Christians, you will hear some libertarians who come along and say, there's nothing special about Israel. We don't need to help them, support them, protect them because they're apostate. They're, they're in the land, but they aren't regenerate, so it doesn't matter, uh, and we should not uh, be allies with Israel. Well, that's treating Israel with contempt. And the God doesn't qualify Israel uh, by saying that uh, this only applies when they're walking with the Lord. And throughout history in the Old Testament and in the church age, those who have treated Israel with contempt have been judged harshly by God. And so this is depicted uh, with Goliath. He is treating uh, David with contempt, and God is going to uh, God is going to judge him. And then in verse um, 
Then in verse, uh, the next verse uh, that I want to remind you of is in going back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, when God is announcing judgment through Samuel on the house of Eli. The Lord God of Israel said, I said indeed that your house, that is the house of Eli, and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So this language continues. God is going to bring judgment against those who treat him and his people lightly. So the Philistine in verse 44 says to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He's threatening to kill David and to dishonor his corpse and to give it and deny it an honorable burial where it is just picked apart by the scavengers of the sky and the scavengers of the field. Now, David gives a, his response in verse 45. Now, I want you to notice that there's a significant difference in the tone. The tone of Goliath is a tone of arrogance, a tone that he and his gods, who are nothing, who are just vanity, that they're going to, they're going to destroy Israel. And he is just full of braggadocia. He is full of bombast because he thinks that because he's bigger and he has larger weapons and more powerful weapons that he's just going to easily destroy David. But David responds in a very solid tone. He, he's, he's firm, but he's not arrogant. But he lays, he's like a lawyer. He's going to lay out a case before the Philistine. And, and there's something we should learn from this, because what we see in this battle scene is that, that, that the Philistine has been challenging Israel, and when the time comes for somebody who's going to take up the challenge, the, David is going to take the initiative, and he's going to be aggressive. But I want you to understand, often when we hear the word aggressive, we also hear other ideas like obnoxious and uh, nasty and mean those aren't part of the word aggressive. Aggressive has the idea of just, just taking the initiative and, and going forward, seizing the moment, taking the opportunity, but not with arrogance, not in a way that is putting other people down, not as a way that is destructive. And so David pictures that. He's going to take the initiative, and he's going to take, take, be the aggressor against, um, against Goliath. And so David begins to lay this out. And let me just read these two verses. It's, it's just a profound statement of trust in God. He says, You come to me with sword and spear and a, the ja and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It is all theocentric. It is all about the glory of God. It's not about about David. It's not about David's power or might as a warrior. It's not about his skill. It's all about the fact that he's demonstrating that you may have great weapons, but the weapon that I have is the Lord of hosts, the omnipotent, almighty God of the universe who is going to give me victory, not because of my skill with the weapons, not because of my greater technology or my great size, but simply because 
he is defending his own honor and his his own uh, promise. So as David starts this, he's not. He shows he's not ignorant. He's not. Um, he's not uh, underestimating the weapons of his opponent. He's not ignorant of his opponents. He recognized. He said, "You've got a sword." And this word for sword is somewhat um, debated. It's probably the large broadsword, but the word that's used here is a word that's just a general sword that could mean the uh, large. A large broadsword that would be wielded with two hands, or it could be a a, uh, a mid-length sword, much like the machaira in front of the pulpit down here, or it could be a dagger. The word is used for a broad range of stabbing and cutting weapons. So this is uh, one tool that uh, that he has. Swords in the this time period were worn in a sheath that was hung over uh, the girdle. And by the by, the uh, left side, uh, typically because uh, the person was right-handed, and he would use a cross draw to pull out his sword. Uh, then he had a spear. We've already seen this mentioned back in First um, uh, Samuel seventeen uh, seventeen seven. It was described there that he had a spear. The shaft was like a weaver's beam. And that the head, the iron head of the spear, the iron point weighed 600 shekels, which is about 1,500 pounds. Now, in order to balance that in a spear, the length of the spear would have to weigh at least that, if not more, in order to give it enough balance so that when he threw it, it would um, it would fly straight to its target. So we're looking at a weapon that was totally about 30 to 35 pounds, and that he has the might and the power, the strength to hurl it some distance in combat. Now, the third weapon that's mentioned here is a javelin, and the word is only used a couple of times in Hebrew. We're not sure what it means. A lot of commentators and uh, language um, uh, ling- linguists, rather, uh, think that it's a curved sword that was slung on his back. Others think it was maybe a shorter, uh, a shorter spear for close-in work. Nobody is is absolutely uh, positive as what that is. But what David is doing here is saying, "This is what you've got. You've got the latest, greatest technology. It's powerful. You're you're you excel with this. But, but I have the Lord of Hosts." And the Hebrew here is is important to understand. He comes, I, he says, I come to you in the name. That means I'm a representative of everything that this God is. Like we pray in the name of Jesus. He, he represents us. Uh, it's that idea. We believe in the name of Jesus. That phrase talks about his character. So he says, I come to you in the name. So it's on the basis of... Uh, all of the character of our God, Yahweh of the armies. The word there is Sabaoth. We sing that when we sing a mighty fortress is our God. It's not Sabbath. It's Sabaoth. And uh, Shabbat starts in Hebrew with an S-H. This starts with a Tzadi, which is like a T-Z sound. And it's a totally different word, Sabaoth, and it means armies. It's uh, usually translated host, which is an antiquated uh, English term. He is the he is Yahweh of the armies, and this pictures not only the uh, the the angelic armies, but also the armies of Israel. And then he expands on that in this phrase. He said, "He's the God 
of the armies. Now, that's not quite the best translation here. Uh, The best translation is that he's the God of the battle line. He's the God of the battle ranks. He is the God who is in control of the battle of, of Israel, whom you have defied. So this uh, this brings up, let me skip this slide, this brings up uh, this concept of blasphemy towards God. It is the Hebrew word haraf, which means to reproach or to show contempt or to show dis- uh, scorn or dishonor. He is blaspheming God. So at the heart of this battle, David is saying it's all about the character of God. And we should think about that in the battles, the spiritual battles in our own lives, that ultimately we have to bring it back, not to me. As soon as we do that, we're talking about the sin nature, me, me, me. It's not this self-absorbed issue. It's what's best that honors the character of God, what glorifies God. That is how I should respond to these, to these circumstances in life. And what uh, Goliath is doing is he is blaspheming uh, the character of God as he is saying that their gods, which are nothing, can defeat the God of Israel. There's something else that's going on here as uh, Goliath is uh, ridiculing his weapons. David's got this unseen weapon, his sling and stones right now, and we see that, that that maybe part of David's thinking in this whole thing has to do with the Torah, that David as the type of the messianic king is one who is going to execute the Torah, obedience to the Torah. And in Leviticus twenty four sixteen, we read, whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall certainly stone him. The stranger, that's the foreigner, to put it in, in King James language, the alien. Um, the, and this guy would have been an illegal alien, an undocumented alien. Uh, the alien, the stranger, as well as him who is born in the land. So the law applied equally to those who were uh, Israelites as well as any who was a, a foreigner in the land. Anyone who blasphemed the name of the Lord was to be stoned. So David is going to stone Goliath. He is going to execute him in fulfillment of the Mosaic law. And he says that the reason for this In verse 47, then all the assembly shall know. This is a testimony. This battle is to be a testimony to the greatness of God, to all the armies of Israel, all the people of Israel, and ultimately to all the world. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear. See, it doesn't matter that you've executed arms control against us and you've prevented us from getting the latest technology because the one who fights for us is God. Now, the reason he can say that is because Israel's the only people in the world that have a contract with God who has promised them a certain piece of real estate. And God's guaranteed that they're going to live there. And that is theirs. He's given them the title deed for that land, and he and he alone... uh, is going to eject them when they're disobedient, and then in his good time, he will bring them back. So that is what we see in the Old Testament. So the point here is that when you're doing God's will, 
God is going to provide for you. Now, that you can't take this and, and, and uh, apply that too closely to the United States because God didn't give us this land. There's no contract. There's no covenant uh, that God has made with the American people. He didn't make one with the British people or with the French or the Germans. He certainly hasn't made one with any of the Arabs or with the Russians or with the Chinese. Only Israel has a contract with God, and only Israel has a right to that land. And so that is why God is going to defend Israel at this time, not because they're great, because as Deuteronomy points out, they're rebellious and stiff-necked people. He didn't choose them because of who and what they were. He chose them because of his own purposes. So now, um, one other reminder, 1 Samuel thirteen twenty-two. Only Saul and David had uh, had a spear. Only Saul and David had a sword or a spear. Nobody else has them. So what God is showing is it doesn't matter what your weapons are. I can take a a, a stone and I can win the battle. Now there are several interesting things that we ought to look at here as as a backdrop to this, and one is to go back to Hannah's song. Remember how much time we spent going through Hannah's song, song of thanks to God in First Samuel chapter two after God uh, gave her Samuel, and we saw how remarkable it was that when we get to the end of that psalm, we see that her insight was so tremendous that she attaches messianic significance to the birth of Samuel. And she recognizes that it is through the birth of this son that somehow this is going to, he is going to bring about a king in Israel and ultimately the anointed one, the, uh, the Messiah. So in, at the end and the close of her, of her hymn, she says that he will guard, the, he, meaning God, will guard the feet of his saints. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength, human strength, human effort, shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. That's what he's doing with David. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, that's a metaphor for the power of his anointed. We need to be reminded in these days that are pretty dark for Christians in the United States. Jeremiah 23 and 9.23 and 9.24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, not knows about me, but knows me, has a deeper, richer personal relationship because of his study of the Word of God, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, exercising loving kindness, chesed, faithful, loyal love, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. That hasn't changed. God is still in control. It doesn't matter who wins the election, and it doesn't matter how nasty the people are who are running for office. God is still on his throne and is still in control. That doesn't absolve any of us of responsibility to go vote. Just because we pray for something to happen doesn't give us the right, oh, Lord, uh, I'm praying that you you will put food on my table. 
Oh, the Lord says, I gave you two feet. You can walk to the store. You've got money in your pocket, and you can buy the food and bring it home. You don't just sit there and wait for it to magically appear. But, Lord, I want a job. Uh, Give me a job. Well, you don't just sit at home. You do whatever it takes to go look for a job, to talk to people, to go through the want ads or go through various uh, tools on the Internet, whatever you need to do to network to get a job. God says, I gave you friends. I gave you contacts. Uh, I'm providing for you. This this idea that I'm not going to vote. The Lord's in control. It'll just come out the way he wants it to. That is silly mysticism. That's paganism. That has nothing to do with divine institution number one of personal responsibility. We have to make a decision. We have to vote. Um, so the, the Lord says, um, I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. He overrides. He is the one who is in control, but that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. Then we have another great promise. Many of these are great promises to memorize. Zechariah 4, 6, the last line, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And remember, this is in the Old Testament when the Spirit of God did not uh, enable the believer in the way he does today. So this is even more true uh, at our time. And always remember, no matter how dark it gets, whether it's personal due to circumstances, uh, beyond your control, or whether it's national or international. Luke one thirty seven. Gabriel said to Mary when she expressed doubts that a virgin could give birth and con- could conceive and give birth, uh, Gabriel said, for with God nothing will be impossible. And then later in Matthew 19.26, Jesus said to his disciples, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is omnipotent. He is able to do everything necessary to accomplish uh, his plan. So David says that this is being done, this battle will be victorious, so that all will know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear. It's not human viewpoint techniques. It's not gimmicks. There are so many churches today that are building their ministries on human viewpoint techniques. They're using marketing techniques of Madison Avenue to go after after people. They're using all kinds of tools and techniques. And as I was told, uh, when I was ordained by Harry Leaf, is uh, he said, Rem- always remember this. Any human being with a lot of talent and a lot of energy and a lot of effort can build a big organization, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has anything to do with it. And I do believe that there are many enormous churches that have a lot of ministries and people are attracted to these things. Uh, they want something for their kids. They want something for the teenagers. I tell you, it's a loser parent who uses their kids as an excuse to go to an apostate school. I've heard it, apostate church. I've heard this my whole life. Well, I can come here and I can get the Bible, but I know enough. No one ever knows enough. But my kids need other kids. That is the devil's own lie. You you need to get your kids somewhere where you're teaching them that the priority is the truth of God's word, not social activities, not other kids, other people. So 
We have to learn that the battle is the Lord's and we fight the battle God's way. We don't fight it according to these human viewpoint techniques. We just trust the Lord, and that's what we, what we emphasize here at West Houston Bible Church. So then we see the climax occur, and it's so dynamic. It was when the Philistine arose. He's moving slow. He's got to pull all. He probably weighed about 500 pounds. He's got to lift all of that off the ground. And he comes and he walks and he draws near. So he's walking slowly. I'm imagining how this would be put to music in an opera. He's, he's moving slowly. You hear the bass. You hear uh, the low, slow uh, kettle drums. And then David, you hear a snare drum, and he's moving fast. And David hurries and runs to meet the Philistine. He's aggressive. He wants to engage the enemy, but he does the right thing the right way. Okay? There's too many Christians who get the idea, I want to be aggressive. And what they hear is, I'm going to be obnoxious. You've got to be grace-oriented and humble. Think about how Jesus was aggressive. He was aggressive in the way he... He, he showed his love and his grace to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He's not aggressive. In, he, he's not beating up on them for their sins or their past failures. And there's nothing obnoxious about it at all. The only time that Jesus get and we'll see it in a couple of Sundays, that Jesus got a little, uh, uh, what some people might say is obnoxious, is when he ran into the religious crowd who was deceiving the people. And he threw the money changers out of the temple. Uh, and then he's going to come up with these curses and these judgments, these woes against the Philistines in Matthew chapter 23. But he only is that way with those who are uh, rebellious, hostile to the word of God. But those who will humble themselves, he is the one who takes the children on his lap. He is the one who uh, deals in grace and humility with the, uh, uh, with the sinners it's not aggression in a negative sense. It is aggression in a positive sense of taking the initiative to do the right thing. And so David runs to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his, in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. Can you imagine this, this thing is like a rock? It's probably going 50 miles an hour. And strikes him in the forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead. It collapsed the entire frontal bone of his of his cranium and knocks him out. He falls on his face to the earth, so he's face down in the dirt. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword. See again we're reminded he's not using human tools. It's done in the power of God. Now, some people may think, wow, what, what a miracle that must have been. I'm sure there's a miraculous divine element there. But we have a testimony in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, about the, this, this, this battalion of warriors in, in Benjamin. They're all left-handed, and they are select men, choice men, who were left-handed, everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. In other words, they can hit dead center. They can hit a fly sitting on the bullseye at 200 yards with a one-pound stone every time. They trained and they trained and they could excel. And David was the same way. It wasn't just like, oh, this, this. he wasn't using a sling like I would use a sling. 
He was dead on, and he demonstrated that. And then he doesn't stop just because the giant goes down. David ran and stood over the Philistine, took the Philistine's sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now, that seems pretty gory to modern sensibilities, but it was standard operating procedure in the ancient world. At the end of Samuel, we're going to see that when the Philistines kill Saul, they're going to chop his head off, and they're going to hang his body up on the walls of Bechan. This was standard operating procedure in the ancient world. It was uh, pretty brutal at that time. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Their panic sets in, and they run away. So we see this picture of David taking the head of, uh, uh, of Goliath, and what we're going to see is he's going to take that head to Jerusalem. And we'll see this at the, uh, at the end of the story. He takes the head to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is still con- under the control of the Jebusites. David doesn't conquer it for quite a few more years. So why does he take it to Jerusalem? Now that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe he's going to show them what their future will be. Something like that, I'm sure. So the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And uh, the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim, which means the city of the two gates, uh, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. Just to give you a look at this on the map, here's Gath. Here's Ekron. This, the Elah Valley does kind of a dogleg through here. We don't know where Sha'araim is. It's uh, never been discovered, but it's somewhere probably in this area. And so they're pursuing the uh, Philistines back to Gath, and then to Ekron, two of the major cities of the Philistines. This is a major defeat of the Philistine army, and they're, they're, they're not going to be a problem again uh, for a few years. David's going to be a little bit older, maybe five or eight years goes by. Uh, doesn't, it's not a knockout blow, but it certainly sets him back for a little while. And then the last verse in this section before we start talking about Saul's response next week And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. Now, maybe he went to Jerusalem, and he took his spear, and he put Goliath's head on top of Goliath's spear and stuck it in the ground as a warning to the Jebusites. I have no idea. That is just pure guesswork and pure supposition. The text doesn't tell us, because Jerusalem at this point isn't where the temple or tabernacle is. Nothing's going on there. It's a Jebusite, pagan Jebusite city. Why he does this, we don't know. The text doesn't indicate it at all. What are the basic principles that we learn from this? First of all, we learn that we have to do God's work God's way. We don't do it on our own terms. We have to identify human viewpoint, Mickey Mouse techniques and gimmicks and recognize that that's not from the Lord. It might work. It might build a big church. It might uh, get a lot of people somewhere, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has anything to do with it. Second, we have to remember that God plus one is a majority. It doesn't matter that we're in a minority. What matters is that God is on our side. Third thing we have to remember is that we're just take our stand on the Word of God. 
but be careful. We're going to learn some more about this in a couple of weeks when we get into uh, Matthew 23. Don't take your stand on what you think the Word of God says or on what some pastor tells you the Word of God says because he might be wrong, but on what the Word of God actually says. There are many times Scripture has been uh, misinterpreted and people have claimed these promises, but it's going to be a failure because you've misinterpreted the Word of God. We have to make sure that we stand our ground on the Word of God and not on some facsimile of the Scripture. And fourth, we need to take the initiative and be aggressive in a kind, gentle, humble, obedient way, not in an obnoxious, nasty, self-absorbed manner. We need to note the difference in Jesus' life. He's aggressive He goes for what he's supposed to go for, but he doesn't do it in an obnoxious way. Paul is the same way. He does what he's supposed to do. He's not shy. He's not bashful. He doesn't wait and say, oh, Lord, just just somehow make it happen. No, he goes and does what the Lord has directed him to do. We have to take the initiative and be aggressive in trusting the Lord and remember that the battle isn't ours. The battle is the Lord's. Father, thank you for this opportunity to to study this great passage, be reminded that you are still on your throne and you are still in control, and that no matter how circumstances might appear in our lives, no matter whether it's personal or national, we know that you're in control and that we are to trust you and to walk by the Spirit and to be engaged in the battle against our three great enemies, the world, Uh, the flesh, and the devil. But we're only aggressive against our sin nature. You take care of Satan, and you take care of the world, and we are to be transformed by renewing our mind. And we pray that you would, through God the Holy Spirit, do that in Christ's name. Amen.